The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the presidential race in my members-only inner circle club. You'll receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here is a special offer for my podcast listeners. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. And if you sign up for a one- or two-year membership, you'll get 10% off your membership price and a VIP fast pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. Use the code podcast at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast and use the code podcast. Hurry, this offer expires February 14th. On this episode of Newt's World, it is a seemingly undeniable truth that aging is inevitable. But what if everything we've been taught to believe about aging is wrong? What if we could choose how long we live? Incredible new breakthroughs in research reveal that we can slow down or even reverse aging. As one of my guests, Dr. David Sinclair, describes it, aging is a disease, and the disease is treatable. The key is activating newly discovered vitality genes. Recent experiments in genetic reprogramming suggest that in the near future, we may not just be able to feel younger, but actually become younger. I'm pleased to introduce my guests, Dr. David Sinclair is a professor in the Department of Genetics and co-director of the Paul F. Glenn Center for the Biology of Aging at Harvard Medical School. He is the author of Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To. And Dr. Nir Bartzelai, director of the Institute for Aging Research at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and the director of the Paul F. Glenn Center for the Biology of Human Aging Research and of the National Institutes of Health. He is author of the upcoming book, Age Later, Secrets of the Healthiest, Sharpest Centenarians. Dr. David Sinclair is the author of Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To. How did you get involved in looking at the process of aging? As I was a teenager, I realized that the world was aging 
that this would be something in the 21st century we would need to tackle and that these new sciences would be able to not just understand why we age, but even figure out how to slow it down. And typically people's reaction to that is, well, aging is natural. Let's just accept what we're given. But uh, we used to say that about cancer and heart disease. And we forget that aging is the largest cause of disease and disability on the planet. We're typically just treating the symptoms, not the actual causes of these diseases. To what extent is the breakthrough in genetics make it possible for us to think more creatively about aging? Well, yeah, it's an extremely exciting time in biology in general. But in the aging field now, we have the ability to test hypotheses extremely quickly. What used to take a year of work, we can now do in a couple of days for one hundredth of the cost. And what we've realized is that there are actual genes that control the aging process. We call these longevity genes. And more recently, what we've discovered in my lab and a couple of other labs around the world is that aging is fundamentally just a loss of information over time. And that remarkably, there seems to be a backup hard drive, a copy of this youthful information that we can tap into and reset the age of tissues in animals. And we're hoping in the next couple of years, we'll find out if it's true for us as well. Most of the field has transitioned into mammals, so studying mice, of course, but also organisms like naked mole rats and non-human primates. And more recently, in the last 10 years, many of us, myself included, have started human clinical trials with molecules that we found extend the lifespan of all those species with the hope that we can use these or molecules like them to be able to slow down our aging process and prevent frailty and heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, and push that off later we typically only live about 40, 50 years before our bodies start to fall apart because that was how long we were expected to live in prehistoric times when we were subject to wars and predation and starvation, much more than we are now. Walk us through more the information theory of aging and why you think aging occurs. So this is the big conceptual breakthrough that we've had in my lab. The concept that I've put forward called the information theory of aging is the idea that there are a lot of things that go wrong with aging. We know that, no question. We see it as heart disease, we see it as frailty, and it ultimately ends in death. But if you boil it down into its element, what I believe is going on is that the information that a cell has to stay young, information that we get from our parents and in the womb, that information is lost over many years. And what am I talking about by information? Well, there are two types of information in the body. The one that we hear about a lot is the genetic code, the DNA, and that's a quaternary or a digital code. We know that there are letters in the DNA, A, C, T, G, that's it. And that code, the digital code, is actually quite robust. And we used to think that DNA damage and mutations that accumulate were the main driver of aging. That's spawned a multi-billion dollar industry of free radical quenching antioxidant products. But actually what's turned out is that the free radicals and actual mutations don't seem to be the major driver of aging. So we've had to look for a new theory. Just an example of the evidence against that theory is that we can create, and many people have created mice that accumulate a lot of mutations. And you'd expect if it were true that they drive, drive aging, those mice would get old prematurely. Turns out they don't. They live a normal lifespan. So what is it that's going wrong? Well, the other type of information in the body is not genetic, it's epigenetic. And epigenetic just means anything that can be passed along between parent to offspring or cell to cell as it divides that's non-genetic. In actual molecular terms, what we're talking about are the structures that tell the cell which genes to read. The epigenetic information is essentially the pianist of a piano, but instead of having 80 or so keys on the piano, our cells have 20,000 keys, each one being a different gene. And each cell type has to play a different tune. And my theory is that it's not the piano that goes awry, it's the pianist, the epigenetic pianist. And the good news is that we think now that we can reset the pianist or bring in a new pianist and play the music of our lives that we had when we were young. So are you then looking at sort of a information replacement model? It's more of a reset because what we found is that there's a backup copy 
of the epigenome of that information somewhere in the cell. We know we can access this epigenetic information and get the cell to read the genes the way it should when it was young because we can use a gene therapy. We've got a combination of three genes. These have a name. They're called the Yamanaka factors. It won the Nobel Prize in 2012 for Dr. Yamanaka. Uh, but we're using a, a particular combination of his gene, three of them, that it doesn't just appear to reverse aging. It literally does send the, the clock backward. And we can read the age of a cell by measuring its epigenome. We can read chemicals that accumulate on the genome over time. But the amazing thing is that we now know that there's this backup hard drive. We don't know exactly how it's encoded. We don't know exactly how the cell reads it. But we know that it's possible and we can access it. It's as though we've finally found the switch on the hard drive and been able to press the reset switch. We don't know exactly what's inside the hard drive just yet, though. And do you think that it's possible that these may be differentiated by cell types so that the whole body would require a series of different interventions based on cell type rather than a single universal intervention? Well, that's what we're exploring now. This is what's exciting is that we've got some evidence that it actually is a universal theory that applies to all different cell types. And one of the best pieces of evidence I can give you now is that we can do this in nerve cells, in skin cells, in the dish, and we decided to reset the optic nerve, the retina of old mice, to see what would happen. And we didn't choose the retina because I like working with retinas. We just chose the retina because my student knows a fair bit about the eye. His father has worked with the eye for his career. So my student said, let's try to reset the eyeball. And You know, we could have chosen the liver. We could have chosen skin. We went for the eyeball. And it worked. We now routinely take mice that are a year old and they cannot see very well. And we can, within a matter of three weeks, turn on this gene therapy in their eye. We inject the genes into the front of the eye. It takes literally two seconds. We turn on these genes for three weeks. And the mice get their complete youthful vision back again. And if it works in the eye, then I'm convinced that it's highly likely to work in most cell types in the body. The hard part, though, is delivering these genes across the entire body. We don't have that technology fully developed yet. And we're also now working on other simpler ways to reset cells that won't require gene therapy, which, of course, will be expensive and cumbersome. So we're now looking at natural molecules that we could give to a mouse when it's old, but obviously our hope is that we could give a person in their 50s or 60s a course of these pills and reset their age by five, ten years or more. Has the mouse lost their eyesight, or has it just gotten weaker before the intervention? Well, it's lost most of its vision. What we do is we put the mouse in front of a screen with moving lines, vertical lines that move in front, and if it moves its head to the way that the lines are moving, say left to right, we know that it can see the lines. It's an LCD screen, so we can shorten the distance between those lines or lengthen them, and we can tell how good its vision is. So it's probably lost about 75% of its vision by one year of age. So it's not completely lost. But what we find is that when we reset the eye, the nerve cells actually regain their ability to function. Now we can put even a probe in the back of the eye and measure the nerve impulses. And those old mice have almost no nerve impulses. That's the reason they've lost a lot of their eyesight. And when we reset those cells, we get the young electrical potential. And then we can take those nerves out and measure which genes have been reset. And you know, 95 or more percent of those genes have gone from being an old pattern of gene expression, as we call it, back to a young pattern. And that's why those mice can see again. So it's very good news that with aging, if this is true, those cells that we think have now irreversibly lost their ability to work can be restored in a relatively large fashion. Does that also mean that in principle, if you could learn to do this, you then dramatically reduce the susceptibility to disease because you now have a youthful immune system rather than an aging immune system? Yes, you've hit the nail on the head. If you've got a young liver, young skin, young immune system, you shouldn't get diseases. Diseases arise because our cells lose their identity, I believe. 
and they don't function efficiently. And the same reason that eyes lose their eyesight, I believe, is the same reason why we get diseases of old age. We'll have to see what happens to things like the brain. Do we keep our memories even if we reset the age of the brain? We're testing that. We don't know if we're going to greatly reduce the amount of cancer that we'll have if we reset the body. So far, we know at least that it's safe. We've been treating these mice now for up to a year without any evidence of increased cancer in those mice. But yeah, there are still a lot of questions. One big question that I have is, how many times can you reset? What if we let those mice go for another year? Can we send them back again to being young? And maybe we can reset the body five times, a hundred times. We don't know yet. So in that context, one of the areas that we keep running across is the whole notion of metformin. Can you sort of describe that and where does that fit into your own thinking? Yeah, so metformin is a really interesting drug. This is a drug that's treating type 2 diabetes in probably tens, if not hundreds of millions of patients across the world. It's relatively safe. It's on the list of essential medicines for humanity. And it was originally developed in the 1960s to improve our blood sugar levels if they get high. But what we've realized as a field is that by studying more than 10,000 patients who have taken metformin, is that those patients, even though they have type 2 diabetes, have relatively good health and actually have dramatic reductions in the susceptibility to certain cancers and heart disease, frailty, and even Alzheimer's. Now, how does it work? Well, that's debatable. Still, to this day, we don't know exactly how metformin works in the body. But one major concept is that there are these longevity genes that protect us. Now, there are three main classes of those. I work on a group called sirtuins. There are seven of those in our body. There's another class which are called mTOR. mTOR is a protein complex that regulates the body's defenses when we don't have enough protein or amino acids. And the third one, which is really relevant to metformin, is called AMPK, which is short for AMP kinase. And this is an enzyme that registers low energy in the body. Now, the important thing to know is that these three groups of longevity genes talk to each other. And so if you tweak one, the others will also come on. And what metformin does is that it activates this AMPK, third class of longevity gene, and fights against deterioration, turns on the sirtuin genes that I work on. And actually, the, one of the main roles of the sirtuin is to preserve epigenetic information. So what could be happening, and we need to test this, is that metformin is slowing down the ticking of the epigenetic clock. And we can actually measure that epigenetic clock in a blood sample. I could take your blood and tell you how old you are biologically and have a pretty good prediction of how long you're going to live. And if we gave you metformin for a number of years, we may be able to see you and hopefully hundreds of other people that that clock is slowed down. It's pretty widely used now, isn't it? It's a frontline therapy for type 2 diabetes millions of patients. So do we have enough data to know that it's relatively safe to take it? It's extremely rare. The numbers that I'm aware of is that only one in 10,000 people has a major reaction that requires them to completely stop taking it. Typically what the side effect is, and I think this is about 30% of people who take it, is that they feel as though they have an upset stomach. I take metformin myself and this is my problem. I, I need to take metformin with food. Otherwise, it'll feel really harsh. But the nice side effect of it is that it actually suppresses appetite, and I'm trying not to eat as much in an effort not to gain weight and also to trigger my longevity defenses by skipping a couple of meals if I can per day. But yeah, it's, it's relatively safe. Now, I'm not an MD. I'd never recommend medicine. But there's a lot of doctors who do now think that metformin is our best shot right now at a prescribable medicine that does slow many aspects of aging. And do you have to get a prescription for it, or is it over-the-counter? In the U.S., it's prescription only. It's not true for all countries. Some countries, for example, in Thailand, it's freely available over-the-counter. In the U.S., Canada, Australia, and the U.K., you do need a prescription. The good news is that there are more and more doctors who are learning about this. Many doctors have now read my book and the references within the book, and I'm hearing that many people who once could not get metformin from their doctors because they hadn't yet become type 2 diabetic are actually able to convince their doctors that it's a good thing to actually start taking it before you get type 2 diabetes. 
has the FDA approved that general use for metformin, or is it still primarily listed only as a type 2 diabetes drug? Yes, it's for type 2 diabetes. Some doctors prescribe it off-label for treating cancer as well currently. But for aging, the problem is that aging is not considered a medical condition. So it's unlikely in the next few years that that will even happen. But the FDA is open to the idea of classifying aging as a medical condition. And in fact, the World Health Organization did us a favor by declaring old age as a medical condition in their handbook of diseases on the planet. And so the winds are in the air, they're shifting, and we're in it, hopefully through some clinical trials with metformin that are about to begin, we will be able to prove to the FDA that aging is a treatable condition. And so that could be a world where when you reach 50, you do go on to medicines that will give you an extra 5, 10 years of healthy existence. Isn't there a National Institute of Aging? Oh, yeah, they fund my lab. In that sense, there may be an ability for NIH to help make the case that we should simply treat aging as a disease and not as a condition. They're very much behind this. They've been helping lobby the FDA. They've come also to speak with members of Congress. We're all behind this. It makes perfect sense, just that this is a, these are big institutions and they take a long time and they're very conservative. Doing something which dramatically improves aging could be an enormous breakthrough. Somebody once said, it makes Social Security more expensive but saves you a whole lot in Medicare. That's really true. I mean, the amount of money that is predicted to be saved by one of these medicines is in the trillions over the decade that follows. So this is money that would more than enough uh, cover Social Security. And also people become more productive members of the community and they can go back and work. There's a lot of positive things that would come from keeping people healthier, no question. To be honest, I think the world is in a stupor. They need to wake up to this fact. And I know in the future, they're going to look back at days like today and think, what were they thinking? Why weren't they addressing the most important problem that they face as a planet? I mean, it seems to me that this is a pretty useful place for the president and the Congress to sort of adopt a resolution calling on, on FDA, but also calling on Medicare to start thinking about a therapeutic alternative to aging and having as a goal dramatically extending productive and healthy life. Well, that would make my day. It would really change the world. And in fact, there's a lot of innovation that's going on, but we're not very well funded. The NAA, National Institute on Aging, only spends a fraction of 1% of its budget to address the major cause of all age-related diseases. But maybe we have to change the name. Maybe we should just call it age-related deterioration or something else, because aging, you know, it's got this halo around it as though you shouldn't touch it. It's natural. It makes life meaningful. But anyone who's experienced aging or had a loved one who's seen what happens, I don't think you can argue that we should just forget about this and not tackle it with major resources. As I understand it, the scientists at Australia's National Science Agency have a sort of genetic clock computer, and they project that the natural lifespan actually is something like 38 years. We were kind of designed to be born, grow up, have children, and get out of the way. In that sense, aren't what you're doing just an extraordinarily radical break with the classic evolution of humans? This is just a natural progression. It, you know, is there anything that we haven't worked on as humans to try and make our lives better? Why is aging any different? The people I've talked with, in addition to yourself, who are really into looking at this, all offer this sense that we're right at the edge of breakthroughs that will literally change the world in terms of people living much longer, much healthier, having much less disease, because they'll be maintaining much stronger and more vibrant immune systems. I mean, is that sort of how you see it evolving? I do. We aren't just on the verge of breakthroughs. We've made major breakthroughs. We now have a very good idea about how to live our lives to stay younger. And then on top of that, we've discovered that 80% of our health in old age is, is epigenetic, and only 20% is genetic, which is very empowering. We live in a world now with enough information to be able to do a lot about our lifespan and push our health out. 
but we do need a little help, right? We still have this baggage from evolution where we used to die at 40 from most things. But that doesn't mean we need to accept it. We are on, on the verge of many different ways to keep ourselves alive from bio-tracking devices, just a, a watch or a ring. I'm wearing a ring that tells me various vitals. We can take blood tests that tell us how to optimize our body. And then the drugs that are coming, we already have metformin, which we think is an early lucky start towards the kind of medicine that should be prescribable to people as they become middle-aged and older. That would hopefully give people another 10 years of productive life. And eventually, if we're looking towards the end of this century, why couldn't we live another 20, 30 years in healthy life? I think even extrapolating of the advances that we've been making over the last 200 years. If you do a linear extrapolation, a child born today in the U.S. will be able to live, on average, to 104. And in Japan, it's 107. And that's even without a major breakthrough. You're talking about also a very different quality of life in your 80s and 90s than what we've been used to thinking of as getting older. For sure. Let me make it personal rather than scientific. I think it's more helpful here. My father is now 80. In his late 60s, he was not looking forward to the next decade of his life. He could see what, what happened to his mother, and she was in a wheelchair from her 70s and 80s and eventually died in her early 90s, but the last 15 years of her life were nothing you would wish on anybody. This is the situation that we're left with if we keep playing whack-a-mole medicine, treating diseases once they actually occur rather than addressing the actual major cause of all of these problems. But my father has taken his health into his own hands. He's doing the right things, which include exercise, fasting. He's taking metformin. He's taking a couple of other things that we've discovered in my lab are helpful. And although this is not a clinical trial, it's a beacon of hope for what the world could look like for people in their 80s and 90s. He's gone back to work. He started a new career. He just took shipment of his dream car, he got a Tesla, and he's reliving his life, and he has no aches or pains or diseases at 80, his eyesight's fine, his hearing's fine, he's traveling the world. So imagine if we could do that for the majority of the U.S. population, imagine the productivity and, and the money we'd save rather than having men in their 80s being spoon-fed or essentially passing away. So in a sense, you're talking about a shift from a response-centered medicine to a prevention-centered medicine. Right. Well, I, I don't want to throw away all the good work that we've done over the last 100 years in medicine, but I think we're missing a huge opportunity to lengthen lives by starting earlier and tackling the major cause. Because right now, we just deal with things after it's already too late. And it's not surprising that we're, we're running up against the barrier, which is aging itself. We've pretty much solved all the easy things. We've taken care of childhood illness, death at childbirth, infection. And now, because aging is the major problem, we're just trying to keep people alive when it's pretty much too late by the time doctors get involved. I mean, most people go to the doctor only when they get sick and, you know, maybe a, an annual physical. That's ridiculous. We should be getting tests or having monitors on our body that tell us years before we actually get so sick that it's too late. One of the things that I was proudest of when I was speaker is that even though we were being very frugal and balancing the federal budget for four years in a row, we doubled the NIH budget. Could you explain just for our listeners how important is it to have the kind of basic research investment that NIH and the National Science Foundation represent? Well, Newt, you changed the world. You literally did. Many of the medicines that we have today have come as a result of that funding. I myself was a recipient of that funding. My early career in the 90s and 2000s, when I started at Harvard, relied on that funding. And we now are reaping all those benefits. It's actually a misconception of some people that the universities pay for research. They actually don't. Researchers like myself who study the fundamental causes of disease rely sometimes 100% on the government to fund our research. And often when we do this research, we don't know where it's going to lead. Sometimes we're studying little worms or flies. We don't know 20 years down the future where we are today 
what the breakthroughs are going to be. We just know that if you give smart people money and curious people money and they can justify it, they're going to make fundamental breakthroughs. And that's what happened. And we now have a whole generation of young scientists like myself and people that I've now trained that are studying remarkably exciting areas of biology, such as aging research. And it also fueled the genomics revolution. We now are in a world where instead of doing a human genome over two years and a billion dollars, we can do it over two days for a hundred dollars. Essentially, it'll be free soon. And this is largely because of the investment back in the early 2000s and the mid-1990s. And I'm extremely grateful for that opportunity. And I think that the world is different and many millions of lives have been saved as a result. One of the things I've noticed is that as you're thinking about all this, in addition to the physical and genetic patterns, that apparently people who experience stress have a big impact in terms of aging. What is your theory of the role of stress in this whole process? There's good stress and there's bad stress. So keep the bad stress away, which is being depressed, being nervous all the time, because what you'll get is cortisol levels going up, which will accelerate inflammation, and inflammation is very bad for, for your longevity. But there is a good type of stress, and that is what we call hormesis, a bit of biological stress. You want to put your body in a state of perceived adversity. In other words, the world we've built around ourselves is that we don't have to experience hunger typically. We don't have to walk very far. And in response, our longevity genes are essentially switched off during our lives. And therefore, our bodies don't fight disease. And this is another reason why I think that we have a reduction in lifespan in this country because we've succumbed to a very easy life. And the problem is that our bodies become complacent and they don't turn on these genes. So what we do in the lab and what I do in my life is we like to trick the body into being in a perceived state of adversity. So what does that mean? We need to lose our breath once in a while, a few times a week, even just for 10 minutes, get on a treadmill, climb some stairs, be hungry. I typically skip breakfast and lunch if I forget to eat in normal dinner. But that period of hunger and period of exhaustion is what turns on our longevity genes and we believe would slow down the aging process. But yeah, in terms of stress, you want to be surrounded by friends. You don't want to always be lonely and stressed out. You can see that in the zoo. You can see that in your own pets. If they're stressed out, they will get sicker and die earlier. You know, that, that may explain why when you look at people who have been sort of historic leaders, there's something about their will to survive. I was with Henry Kissinger recently, and Henry's 20 years older than I am. And I was seeking his advice about aging productively, and he was saying, you know, you're such a young person. Why are you even worrying about this stuff? And he travels all over the world at uh, 96 years of age. And I think the very engagement keeps his immune system so high. And you see this in a lot of leaders. I used to think that it was just a biological DNA thing, that they just happen to have strong immune systems. But in a sense, what you're describing is they engage in activities which keep up their biological pattern so that they're just naturally stronger because they have sort of a good stress that they live with. Being engaged, keeping your mind active, moving are all good things, and leaders typically do that. And so maintaining a good perspective is known to help. But the question I would have is, how does that work? And one of the breakthroughs that's come recently from studying animals in the lab, mice typically, is that the brain can control your rate of aging. Dong Sheng Kai, he's uh, in New York, he's at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He published a nature paper a few years ago that showed that if he keeps inflammation down in the brain, in a particular part of the brain called the hypothalamus, the mice live longer. And so that might be the way this is working. If, if our brains are healthy and active, then they're sending out healthy signals to the rest of the body as a result. And so maybe that's why Henry is still able to function like that at 96. It would be great if we all could do that. You're really talking about a world in which people function at a much younger age than the age they end up being. So when I ask people how long do they want to live, people say, oh, I don't want to live beyond 100. But they're missing the point. The point is that someone who lives over 100 was still playing tennis when they were 90 and you know, maybe starting a new career. You're exactly right. The longer you live means the healthier you are throughout life. 
people who actually who live over 100, when you ask them how often did they get sick in their lives, most of them say they've never been sick. They can't remember getting sick. That's a vibrant life. And what happens to people who live over 100 is that they die more quickly and they cost, and this is a fact, on average one-third less than someone who dies before 100. And so that's also going to save the U.S. and the world a great deal of money if we can make people live longer. I want to get a study done by somebody along this line because if you project it out, I couldn't wait to go to the Congressional Budget Office and the Office of Management and Budget and the actuaries at the Center for Medicare's and say to them, okay, we know almost exactly what you said, that the real problem is people who allow themselves to have chronic conditions in their 70s and 80s or their late 60s, they're expensive. But if you, in fact have both the the attitude and the habits and the patterns and the genetics to be relatively healthy until you're in your 90s, you die remarkably inexpensively. So the lifetime cost to Medicare of a person who lives to be 100 for every person who has a chronic condition at 65, and you still end up making money. And the amount that'll save in Medicare will almost certainly balance the budget. And because they'll be healthier, they'll actually earn more and pay more in taxes than they'll get in Social Security. This could be the pro-health, pro-aging strategy for a balanced budget. Well, I couldn't agree more. And I'm doing modeling of this with a couple of professors in London. And we're almost done with those projections. I'd be happy to send those across to you. What we found is that a virtuous positive feedback cycle, which is health brings wealth, wealth brings health. And for the individual, they are remarkably more productive and then their productivity generates wealth that can generate health, and it just goes up exponentially. We could argue that you have a duty to age well because it'll help save America if you'll just age well and be cheap in your use of Medicare. From your standpoint, you know, people run into these various general health stores. They buy supplements. They're looking for all sorts of things. I have some other friends who are literally leaving the country in order to get stem cell treatments that they claim substantially helps them. What's your reaction as a researcher in this field to those kind of strategies? There are some things that are low risk and high reward, like metformin. It's cheap. It's maybe a few cents a day. No downside, only potential upside. So that kind of approach and some supplements, I take a couple. One is called resveratrol from red wine, which we became known for in the early 2000s. And another one called NMN, which boosts NAD. The reason for that is that activates the sirtuins, that we, the genes we work on. These are all very benign substances that, at worst, I'm throwing my money away, but they're not even that expensive. So that's one end. I choose to do the safe but high-reward stuff. So does my father at 80. That's an easy calculation for him because he knows what's going to happen if he doesn't do anything. At the other extreme, there's expensive procedures that are not yet proven, but also have some potential risk. Transfusions, for example, we don't know at all if there's benefit, and you've got to have some faith to it. I'm not going to tell anyone how to live their lives. I think everyone has a right to spend their money and live their lives how they want. I think that that's an extreme. I'm only 50, so give me another 20 years and I'll probably feel differently about it. But at my age, I think the things that I do, which are Lifestyle changes and a few supplements are doing me enough good for now. I think the issue for most people right now is there's so much information and also misinformation about these procedures. And that's why I wrote my book, is to talk about the science as it is that we all agree on and what things we think are likely to work and also things that I think are are fringe and not yet ready for prime time. Is there one or more websites that seem to be pretty close to the current state of information flow that you could recommend to people who want to be actively involved and understand what's coming down the road? The one that I can vouch for is my own website, lifespanbook.com, and you can sign up for a newsletter that I put out. And there's also blogs that I've written over the last year or so about the technologies. And that's based on having read tens of thousands of scientific papers. So this is as good as you'll get in terms of information. 
The last thing I want to ask you about is, you mentioned in passing both for you and your father, the importance of fasting as a part of this process. Can you describe why that matters and how it works? Since Hippocrates, we've known probably before that, that fasting is beneficial. And people that live a long time typically have not eaten three full meals a day. So actually, I think that the nutritionists have done this country a huge disservice saying that we should be eating three square meals plus snacks in between. And that's partly what I believe is responsible for the obesity epidemic, besides low quality foods that are cheap. What happens, we've discovered when you fast, is that you turn on your sirtuin longevity defenses. So sirtuins are genes that make proteins that defend the body. These are the equivalent of the Pentagon of the body. They are sending out troops to defend us all the time. But unless there's an emergency, they don't mobilize their resources. They store it up. We store fat. And so when we fast, what we're doing is basically making a call to the Pentagon in the body, these sirtuins, that there's a problem. We might starve. We've got to get ready for adversity. And in response, they send out other proteins to repair the body. They'll help repair broken DNA. They'll reduce inflammation. And that's why we think fasting is very good for you. Same as exercise, same as sauna. We think that these are hormesis effects. We call this term hormesis. What doesn't kill you makes you live longer because it's turning on our body's natural defenses that would be laying idle if we didn't exercise or we gained a lot of weight. And that's a breakthrough, really, because we didn't know why exercise worked. We didn't know why fasting worked before. But what's key to this is that all of these things that we do that invoke this biological threat work through the same process by turning on these longevity defenses, which is really quite an amazing thing to think about, especially because we first discovered this in simple organisms like yeast and worms. And we're discovering, aren't we, like with mice, that a cycle of fasting seems to have a substantial impact on how long they live. You know, I've read so many papers in my life, and if there was one thing I would say that would really change people's lives, it would be to eat less often. And I've done that myself now, and I've, so many people have done this, and they say they feel better, they have more energy, they can focus. And it's not surprising to me, you know, without our longevity gene switched on, we're basically at the mercy of entropy and we lose our information over time. We're basically falling apart. And the only way to counteract that is to turn these defenses on or eventually, if we're successful, to reset the body to a younger age. Well, I'm going to encourage people to go to lifespanbook.com and to sign up. In fact, I'm going to sign up. This has been fascinating. What you're doing is truly going to help millions and millions of people. I want to thank you for sharing with us your views and, and the knowledge that you have acquired. Well, thanks, Newt, for everything you've done for science and for medicine and for the country. It's been a pleasure being on. Thank you again. Coming up, Dr. Nir Bartolai, director of the Paul F. Glenn Center for the Biology of Human Aging Research and of the National Institutes of Health. Hi, this is Newt Gingrich. If you've been enjoying my podcast, I want to encourage you to sign up for my free twice-weekly column. In my column, I address events in news, politics, or other areas of interest to me. It is intended for those who want to be well-informed on the issues of the day. As a listener of Newt's World, you can sign up for my free column at newtsworld.com. Dr. Nir Bartola, director of the Paul F. Glenn Center for the Biology of Human Aging Research and of the National Institutes of Health. We know that there is a biology of aging, and if there is a biology of aging, it means that we can do something about it, and indeed, aging is a very flexible state, and we can target it, we can delay it, we can maybe stop it, and in some cases, we even reverse some manifestation of aging. When I came into the biology of aging, it's, it's a new science, so I was like one of the first. The one thing we all looked at is this fascinating observation that if you take mice 
or rats or really any animal in the world, and you take brothers into two groups. One group, you give them to eat as much as they want, and the other group, you caloric restrict them. In the case of mice or rats, you give them 40% less, so 60% of what their brothers are eating. They would actually live 40% longer, but not only that, they would live healthier for much longer. What do you think is the mechanism which leads to the impact of restricted calories? What is that triggering? There are many mechanisms that we know are targets for aging that are intracellular. But I want to say something about the experiment and how I look at it today. Because of those experiments, people said, well, if I eat less for breakfast and lunch and dinner, then I'm calorically restricted myself. But that's not what we did. We actually gave all the food in the morning to those hungry mice or rats, and they ate all the food that we gave them within 20 minutes. So they were then fasting for 23 hours. And actually, if we start giving them the food throughout the day, they're still thinner, but they don't live longer. So it's not about the caloric restriction, it's about the fasting. And that's why the most popular intervention in the geroscience field, what I'm doing, for example, is I'm doing what's called 16-8. I'm fasting for 16 hours. I eat dinner, and then I count 16 hours, and that's when I'll have my next meal. But the good news is I can have whatever I want for the next eight hours. And this is really how we today interpret the studies on caloric restriction. So you fast for 16 hours, and then you can eat anything you want to for eight hours? But then how does that get you to a 40% restriction? I don't really measure the calories because what is really important is the period of fasting and what happens during the fasting. It's less important what I eat. And, and I think in a way it's the good news because for some people, if you send them on a three-month diet, they can break any day. But when you're fasting and you have an hour to go or two hours to, to go, you'll just do it. And then you know that you eat also whatever you want. So that's how it works. There are two studies in the last week that came out in good journals that support the benefits, but we haven't yet determined exactly the timeline. Is 12 hours maybe enough? Maybe you eat breakfast and dinner, and that's enough. But skipping breakfast seems to be an important thing for me, and I just see the benefits of that on myself. You started talking about working with animals, but you've also studied people and looking at different patterns. What are the kind of people who have very long lifespans? I think what we've done so smartly in this new field of aging, we started looking at animals that live long. And we tried to understand why they live long, and we actually discovered a lot about aging. We still don't know everything about aging, but we actually got an idea of how to start and what to do. And when that started, I said, well, you know, why don't we look at 100 years old? I thought that maybe 100 years old, their aging was delayed. So let's distinct between the biological and chronological age of people. Let's see why some people are accelerating their aging and some people are being so good for so long. And that's when I decided to study centenarians and really their family. The major thing that we found initially is that those 100 years old, it's not that they got sick when everybody else got sick and now they live 30 years sick and with disease and with poor quality of life. No, their health span and lifespan went together. So they lived healthier for 30 years longer. In fact, in our control group, at age 80, only 10% didn't have an age-related disease. And here in our 100-year-old group, still 30 years over the age of 100, 30% didn't have any age-related disease. Some of them are just dying in their sleep. So we kind of have this group of people who prove to us that aging 
uh, is flexible, that aging can be slowed, and that you can have much better life for much longer. Do there seem to be common patterns to the population you're describing? Yes. We had three hypotheses, basically. And the first one is maybe they did what the doctors tell us to do now. Maybe they interacted with the environment. And what I can say about those people, the group that I have, is that almost 50% of them were overweight and obese. So they were not, as a group, calorically restricting. 60% of the men and 30% of the women were heavy smokers. I have a woman who died at 110, and when I met her, when she was 100 years old, she opened the door and she was smoking. And I said, didn't your doctor ever tell you not to smoke? And she said, all four doctors that told me not to smoke, they're dead now. <laughs> Only 2% of them were vegetarian. Physical activity, even moderate, like housework and bicycling, less than 50%. So those people actually didn't interact with the, with the environment. They had something else that protected them. So the next uh, hypothesis, well, if they didn't interact with the environment, what are the protective biology that they have and what we've done? We've done extensive genetic studies in order to discover longevity genes. Of the people you're studying, to what extent is it simply a genetic pattern that's unique and not replicable for other people? While we think that aging is really... The environment is so important for aging or for lifespan. We think it's 2080. You know, 20 genes and 80 is the environment, but with centenarians it flips. We think that they're mainly genetics and much less of the environment, like I discovered. But I think the important thing to know is when we're discovering longevity genes, we're discovering mechanisms that can be turned into drugs. So the first two longevity genes that we discovered had to do with the cholesterol metabolism. They actually increased the good kind of cholesterol that's called HDL or high-density lipoprotein. And those two genes were actually a target for drug development but would the FDA allow that? Wouldn't they require separate studies anyway? So this is our challenge now. You have a disease and you develop a drug, and the FDA approves the drug for the certain disease. But aging is not an indication of target for the FDA. And if aging is not the indication, your healthcare provider doesn't have to pay for a drug that will prevent your aging. And if the healthcare doesn't pay, the pharmaceuticals are not going to jump in and develop those drugs and better drugs and combination of drugs so we can really increase the health span. And for that, we, and when I say we, I'm leading a bunch of scientists, we went to the FDA and we went with a tool and the tool is a drug that's been 60 years out there that's called metformin and used for diabetes. But it happens that metformin is a drug that when you give to animals and even to worms, okay, to all kinds of animals, they would live healthier and longer. So we came to the FDA and we had two questions. One is, what is the indication going to be? We didn't want to call aging a disease because, you know, there's ageism. All elderly people are being fired. They're not hired. Now we call them sick. And not all of them are sick, you know, and what will we do next with them? So we didn't want to call aging a disease, and the FDA didn't want to call an aging a disease. But we agreed that we can actually de delay a cluster of age-related diseases. And this will be indication, we don't have to call it aging, but we're going to delay diseases and increased health span. The second thing we asked the FDA, we said, look, this is our plan, tell us that it's okay because we don't want to do this study and then you'll say you should have done something else. 
So we made a huge progress with the FDA and we're ready to launch the study to prove that aging can be targeted. If aging is a reversible condition, how would you describe it? Because that clearly breaks with the way we have thought of aging for most of human history. I, I know, I know. And believe me, it's very frustrating <laughs> for me to deal with that because it's so obvious. Look, death is inevitable, okay? But aging the way it is, is not. You know, we're in a condition now that we've improved many things and most of us are getting to be old and then we are starting to accumulate diseases and their medications and the side effect of the medication and the interaction of the medication. This is impossible, but this doesn't have to be that way because we can actually target aging which drives those diseases. And the frustration is not only because of that, because we have the knowledge and there's a whole industry that's developing those drugs, but from a political point of view, what people don't realize is that there's a longevity dividend. Let me go back to my centenarians. I told you that my centenarians are healthy for 30 years longer. But really the amazing thing is that they have a contraction of morbidity. What is the contraction of morbidity? They're sick very little time at the end of their life. Some of them, as I said, don't wake up in the morning. Another are sick, you know, up to five months. The rest of us who die at age 80 on average, we're sick for the five to eight last years of our life. The CDC out of Atlanta actually calculated and showed that the medical cost in the last two years of life of somebody who dies over the age of 100 is third of those who die at age 70. So there's a huge longevity dividend we calculated that by increasing health span and preventing all diseases of aging, even in two years, there's a $7 trillion benefit to the economy. It's something we have to do, and we can do it. So why isn't that winnable as an argument? On the political front, and maybe you have more insights, but when I went to the Senate and I met senators and things, they're usually moved by somebody young who dies from a terrible disease more than with aging that actually affects them even more. Even the AARP told me that their clients are never talking with them about their health span. Well, if you ask them, they'll tell you that they would like to be healthier as they grow older. But it somehow doesn't track. So we're going through regulation. We're actually trying to write with the law firm an act of Congress to allow targeting aging. It's not science fiction. It's science now. We know how to do it in variety of animals. And so we're frustrated that there's nothing up from top that help us from something that can be such a great solution for our health system. If you could get the average American to understand three things about healthy aging, what would they be? I think the, the major thing that people can do that had the most impact now is to exercise. Exercise is the major thing at every age, every sex. Exercise has benefits. So this is number one way to deal with aging. Number two is the nutrition. Obesity should be avoided. The best nutrition from my studies is intermittent fasting. Just skip one of your meals a day, preferably breakfast. Try to get 16 hours fasting and there'll be a lot of improvement by that. The third thing is going to be drugs. I'm not selling any of those drugs. I wanna do the study first, but I want people to know that there are drugs available, and I'll tell you the drugs that are available are important not only for aging. When you have something like metformin, which has been widely used now for, what, 60 years? Is there a reason somebody should not take it? We need to do the clinical trial, and we don't want to fail. We don't want to kill anyone on the way. 
in order to say, yes, that's what you should do, that's what everybody should do. And by the way, metformin is the cheapest drug in the formula, in the formulary in the United States. It costs nothing. <laughs> but if you're asking me, can it be repurposed if I think that people are desperate because they're aging rapidly, is this something that doctors can prescribe? The answer is yes, and I'll tell you, there's tons of doctors that are prescribing metformin for everyone. I want people to understand that this is a science, and we're going to prove it. One of the really interesting things, a study with 200,000 people in the UK that showed that people with metformin, those are 78,000 people on metformin, had lower mortality than people without diabetes that are matching, same doctors, same pharmacy, same everything. And the people who were on metformin were diabetic, they were more obese, they were more sick to start with, yet they lived longer. So if you take all those studies together, it kind of tells you, you know, then why don't we take all those diseases and cluster them together and test them on 65-year-old and look at how we move all those diseases by two years. That's what we're trying to do, to show the concept that really one drug can do it, and then we're home free to start doing combination and developing better drugs. Look, life expectancy of us as human species is about 115 years. And we die before the age of 80. So those 35 years are low-hanging fruit in my mind. We can actually make a nice effort to increase health span and decrease and contract morbidity. For us, there are eight hallmarks of aging from a biological perspective. And each of those hallmarks has been shown that if you target that, you extend health span. The interesting thing is they're all interconnected. In other words, you can target one hallmark and it's going to improve other, which is really fascinating. So it's not that we even have to develop drugs for every one of them. We can do two to three hallmarks and we're going to get a really nice effect on health span. I would like to see us have a national project to develop very dramatic breakthroughs in aging. So this has been very helpful. I think this project is very mature. It's really ready. We're just waiting for the funding. It will be great to launch it. I hope that after listening to these two great pioneers, you'll agree with me that the research being done on aging is just amazing. And frankly, as I get older, I get a lot more interested in research on aging. So I can assure you that we're going to be tracking with them, finding their peers, people who are also doing extraordinary work. And over the next few months, we're going to dedicate several podcasts to this whole challenging area. Because after all, if you could literally get to a point where you are reversing aging, you just change everything that we've come to expect about things. And it turns out, ironically, that if you live a long time and you live relatively healthily, you die really inexpensively. So the best way to solve any challenge of Medicare funding is to keep people alive and healthy, and then they become just dramatically less expensive. It's amazing, it's true, and I think you're going to find with these kind of scientists, these are world-class scientists doing world-class research. You can read more about the research the National Institutes of Health is doing around aging, and you'll see an excerpt of Dr. David Sinclair's book, Lifespan why we age and why we don't have to on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Westwood One. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers and our producer is Gornsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. Our guest booker is Tamara Coleman. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's John Wardock and Robert Mathers. Please email me with your comments at newtatnewtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
the Westwood One Podcast Network. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 